we are all in it to sort of solve the world's biggest challenges and when there are these many people trying to do that kind of work i don't doubt that we will get there Welcome to Impact Chats, a responsibly different podcast sharing conversations with industry leaders, leveraging business as a force for good. Welcome back to Responsibly Different. I'm Ben Marine, your host. And in this episode, we're unraveling the intricate web of carbon markets with a leading voice in corporate sustainability, Sarong Murthy of Native. Sarong blends his rich academic background in economics with robust experience in strategy and climate change mitigation to help businesses navigate the complexities of sustainable growth and corporate climate commitments. Our guest today is part of Native, a company at the forefront of developing authentic solutions to sustainability challenges since 2000. Native's approach to sustainability is about creating measurable change and investing every penny towards projects that not only reduce emissions, but also build resilient supply chains and inspire communities. Join us as we dive into the world of carbon offsets exploring how strategic investments can lead to long-term value for businesses and stakeholders alike. Together, we'll learn how companies like Native are using their expertise as certified B Corps to drive environmental performance and social impact. And with that, let's dive on in. Sarang, so I'm so excited to have you here on the show. Uh, We have a lot of really exciting things to jump into, but to get us started, can you provide our listeners with a brief overview of your role at Native and the work that the company does? Yeah, sure thing, Ben. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, so I am Sarang Murthy, and I work on client engagement and market strategy at Native. Native is a Public Benefit Corporation and Certified B Corp in the state of Vermont. We've been around for over 20 years and our projects typically focus on community engagement and community-led carbon and climate action programs. And so what that looks like in practice is that we are either reducing or or removing carbon from the atmosphere um, on a kind of programmatic level. Uh, and what the end result of these activities is, is essentially carbon credits. That's awesome. And, uh, and, and so for folks listening, we've had uh, Native on the show before. So I want to encourage folks um, to check out that episode. We're going to be going pretty deep this episode into uh, some of the carbon markets. And I'm really excited to jump in with you, Sarang. Um, so I'm curious. So you wrote an article, Imperfect Economics, Carbon Markets, and you mentioned that the dynamics of the global carbon market are complex and inconsistent. Could you elaborate on some of the key challenges or complexities that you see? Yeah, good question, Ben. I see a couple of main main challenges that I think plague the voluntary carbon market today. Number one is trust and transparency. And number two is a changing regulatory regulatory landscape. Uh, trust and transparency. So let's kind of zoom in there. The issue with the voluntary carbon market, as the name suggests, is that you're not 
you're not mandated to kind of take any sort of action, right? The way that corporates engage with uh, their emissions and with folks like us is to find and and support high impact and high in integrity carbon projects. The the problem in the past has been that there has been there have been a number of interventions and a number of projects that may not be doing what they had initially set out to be doing. Mm. And this can this this I think is a result of a couple of things. One of course is kind of changing science and the way that folks have come to understand carbon. And number two is that the initial safeguards in this market were loose and people were sort of able to game the system. The changing trust landscape today looks looks like this. So on the supplier side or the side where native sits, the ICBCM or the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market has come together. And this is essentially an industry body of a number of different experts in, in the field to bring some semblance of rules and other sorts of quality metrics to guide what project folks like Native should be thinking about maybe when actually building projects. On the buyer side, so the side where you know corporates and others sit, the VCMI, which sounds extremely similar, but is an entirely different entity, which stands for the Voluntary Carbon Market Initiative, is a buyer side sort of organization that is setting rules against what buyers who are engaging in the carbon market can claim. So, you know, things such as carbon, uh, you know, carbon neutrality or, uh, you know, carbon net zero and things like that. So there are certainly initiatives that, that have kind of come to be in the last 12 to 18 months that really are trying to get at that trust and transparency problem. The other, other problem is that there is this changing regulatory landscape, both in the U.S. and Europe, and of course, largely driven by sort of EU policy around what are maybe the different uh, different in, inter, intervention types that, that should count or what what corporate action should look like in, in the sort of voluntary space. And I think both of these things have certainly created a, some amount of friction in, in this last year. Uh, but we remain very optimistic for 2024 and onwards uh, because to us, this sort of corporate, you know, climate action is really what we need to scale a lot of the solutions out there. I'm so curious. Uh, can you expand a little bit on those initiatives that have come up in the last 12 months and how are they? Because I, I guess I'm wondering from the business perspective, how do they know if folks are playing by those rules or not? Or if it's just somebody popped up a website and is like, I'm selling carbon credits, but. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very, very topical question, Ben. Um, okay, so there are a couple of things here, right? Number one is that a science-based target, which, which, is, which has been sort of crafted by an organization called the Science-Based Targets Initiative, focuses on making sure that entities have set scope scope three reduction plans and we can certainly talk about what scope one two and 
three three are, um, and that those emissions that folks are not able to actually abate within their own supply chain or supply shed, that that they are to use high quality, credible carbon offsets to essentially compensate for the emissions that uh, they were not able to basically reduce. So that's kind of step one. The step two and three, or maybe other parts of this, are, is that the ICBCM and the VCMI have kind of come out of a lot of ask, you could say, from all participants in the voluntary carbon market that realize that there is this kind of supply glut. And I know that we we had kind of talked about this earlier too, which is that there is such a surplus of credits in the market today that if in fact all corporates were engaged in voluntary climate action today were to just use all of those outstanding credits, you'd have enough. But the problem is, is that a lot of these credits out there may or may not be actually credible, may or may not be doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm. The ICBCM specifically is is trying to kind of cut through the smoke and saying, going forward, these are the types of credits that follow certain methodologies that will then account for what actually um, is in that pool of maybe credible offset types. Just for folks that might be struggling to keep up with the acronyms too. I know you, you said them already earlier, but the ICVCM, that's the supplier side. Exactly. Am I getting that straight? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> awesome. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm curious when kind of thinking about going a little deeper into, into that article, you mentioned uh, that not all credited tons are created equal. Mm-hmm. Could you help our audience understand what factors contribute to the disparities in the creation of, of carbon credits? Yeah. Um, the, the, the reason that I said that, right, is because unlike other, other sorts of environmental commodities out there, <clears throat> carbon is one that at the sort of environmental level, one metric ton of carbon is one metric ton of carbon. But how you get there, from a kind of intervention perspective, can look vastly different. You could have a very expensive uh, and in industrial process, such as DAC, which is essentially these large tubes of suctions you, you could think of that draw carbon carbon dioxide from the air and then convert convert this into a, a gas or oil, and then pump those back into sort of geological for formations. The others could be sort of avoided avoided credits. So you're basically avoiding the deforestation of, of uh, lands or forests rather that um, that you can prove, right? That you, you can prove are in a in a in a region of high risk. And so as you can imagine, even though at the end of the day those two things today, at least, are being counted or treated as a as a carbon credit. How you actually get to that credit can look very different, depending on what sort of sort of intervention it is that you are going for. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so I, I'm I'm curious, digging more into kind of the economics of that. From an economics perspective, you discussed the challenge of addressing kind of some of the low hanging fruit in combating climate change. 
Can you explain the implications of focusing on some of those cheaper offsets and how it impacts the overall market? The economics of low-hanging fruit and supporting projects that, that may, may still be having impact, right? It's a very good question. So I think for, for folks listening here that are maybe trying to build a carbon portfolio or a sort of carbon offsetting strategy, something to kind of think about is that there are a number of beyond carbon benefits that are often called social or community goal benefits that are associated with carbon programs. Now, typically, an engineered or a highly industrial solution such as DAC that I, I kind of talked about earlier are expensive and are hyper-focused on that kind of carbon angle or carbon piece. There can be other, other programs that can be nature-based solutions that necessarily require you to work within communities that you are actually implementing these programs in um, to ensure success. And typically, nature-based programs, today at least, tend to be significantly cheaper than these much more expensive sorts of, uh, you know, kind of carbon interventions. I think what it really comes down to is a couple of factors. Number one, what is the purpose of your kind of climate strategy? Are you are you trying to build a portfolio of highly permanent carbon removal or storage? Or are you trying to build one where you are, say, trying to, you know, compensate for a certain number of tons of your sort of carbon impact? And if so, are do you have the ability or is kind of internal stakeholder agreement to support projects that have beyond carbon benefits and usually nature-based ones, as I said, can be those that are uh, maybe not as expensive. That's one piece. And this like next bit, you can, you can think about if it fits in or not. But um, the other piece of this, I think to think about then is that, on that kind of lower end of the spectrum, right, there exists such a sort of deluge, you could say, of projects that either at one point existed um, through in interventions that now would be considered iffy at best, whereas others, even in the sort of nature-based space, which these days would be considered uh, highly robust and, and kind of following scientific rigor, etc. It really does come down, unfortunately, to the buyer and sort of making sure that you understand who it is that you're working with, what this company's track record is, what their sort of history and focus has been in the past, so on and so forth. So unfortunately, where maybe a compliance market would cut through some of these things for the buyer. The voluntary carbon market isn't there just yet, but I think we are slowly seeing that um, up, upcoming. So when you say seeing that upcoming, are we talking like regulations that or public policy? I'd, I'd be curious to hear about that. Yeah, sure. So this, I think, dovetails well in the sort of Article 6 and COP, COP 26 and COP 27 and Paris agreement and all of these other mechanisms and things that, you know, people have been sort of talking about 
for, for the last couple of years. So essentially what kind of ended up happening was that after UN COP 26 and 27, there was an agreement that was reached that Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, whereby the rules of international trade of carbon were established. That, that was sort of the purpose of what Article 6 and COP 26 and 27 essentially were. And, and COP, just, just for folks um, that might not be familiar, is the, is the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's exactly right. Yes. Right. Am I getting that right? UNFCCC. Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so specifically, Article 6 forms a bridge between where the voluntary carbon market is today and a necessary compliance regime that essentially um, makes it such that all carbon emitters, so you can think corporates, countries, everybody, has to have some sort of credible plan for either reducing said emissions or compensating these with high integrity and high quality carbon projects. That, in a nutshell, is what COP26, 27, and all of these other sort of agreements that, that kind of came out of it uh, go into actually doing. This is going to form the regulatory underpinning to what is lacking in the sort of voluntary government, which is that you need a set of rules and regulations where everybody understands and realizes the sort of sphere with which they're playing on, right? Uh, the, biggest, the biggest hurdle, in my opinion, liquidity in this market is that there's a lack of trust and there's a lack of understanding of what what essentially counts as a high high integrity and high impact carbon so going forth i think these these will be absolutely key that makes a ton of sense and i'm, and I'm curious to just pulling a little bit more on that thread of like the voluntary sp spaceness of this right uh, you highlighted dichotomy in the voluntary space where companies transitioning to climate impact mitigation strategies are less inclined to choose the cheapest offsetting options, uh, which I think is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, what do you think is driving that shift in preferences? Yeah, very, very good good question. This is, I think, something that we see in our our work all the time is that a more engaged carbon buyer and a more engaged corporate or entity that wants to do good with their money is necessarily looking for higher impact and high integrity carbon projects. And those that I, I can mention earlier, right, which is with a lot of nature-based solutions, you have that kind of community or social impact embedded really within a lot of these projects. And so these don't come cheap, right? Like they, they aren't the sort of off the shelf cheapest done you could possibly find out there. That, that isn't the purpose, I think, of a lot of storytelling based credits, which can really, I think, amplify a lot of the social good that a brand or entity is trying to achieve um, on the kind of marketing side, right? But on the sort of impact side, you know? Really asking yourself, like, 
where like why 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 are we spending money because if you're spending say a dollar fifty and essentially purchasing bullshit credits uh out, out there from say a very large-scale hydro project in china or something which arguably has done more harm than good uh in in terms of sort of you know displacing e- ecosystems people etc versus okay let's spend a little bit more money and make sure that where we are actually investing there are there are kind of tracked metrics of the impact on the ground for you know communities that really need the kind of carbon financing to scale a lot of the interventions something like this in practice would look like a project that native has in fact in mexico whereby we reduce the cost of the installation of biodigesters on smallholder farms what this essentially does is that it reduces uh, the amount of methane that the on-farm waste would have created by essentially putting all of this waste into these large bags that then pipe the, the, this gas into the very same households that are actually creating the waste in the first place. It's such a beautiful and elegant and simple solution, but one that wouldn't exist if there wasn't voluntary carbon financing to actually get these things up and uh, you know, sort of at scale, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of where someone who's trying to be an engaged and impactful carbon and climate action buyer really needs to like look into what the impact of a lot of these programs are are on the ground. That's awesome, and it it sounds like um, I imagine being native, being a certified B Corp, that you attract a lot of other B Corps. Uh, I, I'm curious, do you, do you find that people are asking a lot of thoughtful questions about how it all works and, and how projects are selected? And yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, th- those, I think to, to me, honestly, are some of the most interesting and fun sort of conversations that I have that really get me excited about every single Monday, honestly, is like being able to sort of translate the impact in a way where you, you you're kind of looking across the screen and you're seeing that people are really moved by by the like kind of work that they can help literally support because a lot of natives work right is we are sort of the conduit to being able to essentially put in catalytic financing so we are essentially taking money up front with the promise that we will be giving you a stream, you could say, of verified third-party, sorry, third-party verified emissions reductions, right? Like that's the that's the kind of idea here. But to, to, to like see that a lot of folks are interested in that kind of upfront catalytic investment piece, that they're being able to see that their money is literally going into building these projects on smallholder farms or, you know, say pastoralists in Kenya or folks that, say, have small plantations in, say, northern Brazil. You're just seeing that there's there's this interest. There's just folks that are over the moon about, about this stuff. And I think that's what, 
that's what gets me super, super excited about this space. That's really cool. I, I mean, and I think uh, I, I'm curious a, a little bit about the flip side of that coin, right? So it sounds like people are paying for for the higher quality um, investments as really mo- sounds like potentially motivated by that storytelling perspective mm-hmm. um, or prospect uh, and perhaps what that could have on, on sales or, or right. Like a monetary bottom line there. Um, and so with companies being eager to ensure their climate commitment is authentic, h- how are they navigating avoiding greenwashing and, and how do you see this kind of demand for authenticity influencing the pricing and the selection of, of the carbon offsetting projects? Very good question, Ben. Um, I think greenwashing has certainly been front and center, especially, I think, when it comes to voluntary climate action and sort of carbon credits, right? There was a, a report recently uh, by our friends over at Forest Trends that, you know, looked at corporate commitments and how those that were participating in the voluntary carbon market, how that engagement in the market was being translated with their own internal reductions in their sort of supply chain and and supply sheds. I actually have some numbers here. So of the 7,400 plus companies that this particular report looked at, 59% of those companies that participated in the voluntary carbon market reported lower year-on-year emissions when compared to just 33% of those companies that did not participate, you know? So you're seeing there that there is a direct sort of correlation between being someone who participates in, in the sort of VCM and then also reducing your sort of your emissions from a kind of economics of it perspective, because that's my kind of background. This, this kind of makes sense because if, if you think about what a sort of carbon abatement curve looks like, um, if you are paying to basically pollute, right, there will come a sort of in, in inflection point where it becomes cheaper for you to actually cut down your own carbon emissions within your supply chain than it does to invest in other other sorts of projects or processes outside of your immediate control, such as say carbon credits or carbon offsetting, that that essentially make it cheaper for you to actually look within your sort of supply chain and and, and kind of cut down emissions there. That's amazing. So it sounds like what could potentially feel like is nefarious is actually that the, the, these organizations that are participating in the volunteer carbon market, right? VCM. Voluntary carbon. Uh, keep me at voluntary. Thank you. I knew I was so close. Voluntary carbon market, VCM. Um, that they are actually also reducing their own footprint yep. in addition to, uh, in addition to, and, to and I offsets. think much of that too, Ben, is the fact that three point so companies that are that are engaged in the voluntary carbon market are also three point four times more likely to have a science based target goal. And by having that goal, you are essentially committing to reducing your 
gross emissions by a certain percentage by 2030, 2040, and 2050. And so, you know, there's, there's, I, I think, I think one can kind of paint a picture here. Like, if you are a more engaged corporate entity in one area of this sort of, you know, effort to essentially do good, you're likely going to be doing good across the board. From our perspective at, at Native, right, we like say with some jest, one day there will come a time when we don't need to have a job because you, us as Native, wouldn't need to be building high impact carbon programs that have third party verified, uh, you know, kind of carbon assets coming out of these, these like projects because we will reach a time when we are literally at carbon net zero. But I think up until that time, there will always be a need for high integrity programs. And again, just I, I've been certainly very f- fortunate to have been a part of a you know, company now for, I guess, three years where we really are seeing community benefits happening every day and support from all sorts of, uh, you know, corporate entities and even the smallest sorts of shops out there that just want to sort of do a little bit of good, you know? So that's really cool. That's really, really cool. And something that, um, you had referenced in your article and then shared, shared with me ahead of our chat was, and, and actually you, you mentioned them too earlier, forest trends. Mm-hmm. I, I want to jump into one of their reports, but before we do that, can you speak a little bit about forest trends, kind of who they are and what they do? Yeah, Forest Trends is essentially a nonprofit organization that uh, does a lot of market-based research and in intelligence. Uh, they they don't sell sell credits or anything like that. They're just engaged with both buyers and also project. You know, I guess well, both with buyers and suppliers to paint a sort of accurate picture in what I believe to be a pretty non-biased way uh, to further what understanding we have of, the, of, of, of this space. Okay, so here, here's a question. So talking about like the surplus mm-hmm. of, of credits, because you'd mentioned that earlier, that there's more than enough credits for all, all the businesses to, to do all the offsetting. Um, so with issuances outpacing the retirements or use of there's a there's a surplus of credits in the market, and and so I'm curious, how does that surplus impact the overall dynamics of carbon offsetting, and are there any kind of concerns associated with that? Yeah, it's a good good question, right? I think in any market where you have a supply glut, what ends up happening is that essentially prices go down, and this is true really of any kind of commodity market or equity market, et cetera. Why it's not true, I believe, of the VCM, at least not true anymore of, of, of our industry, is that there, again, like there, the fungibility. So this is to say that not all carbon credits are created equal, mm-hmm. right? The, the fact that that drives what engaged buyers are looking for. So say you have someone who really wants to get in deep into what their sort of carbon project is doing and what they're supporting, they're unlikely 
to be buying very cheap credits to just make a sort of claim about it. And so in, in, in my view, there actually exists within this sort of supply glut, there exists yet another market almost, one for very cheap credits and one for those that have impact and that have a story behind them and that are doing more than just kind of carbon and things like that. Mostly on the kind of very low end of the spectrum, you see what's called CDM-based credits. So CDM was, uh, is, it stands for the Clean Development Mechanism. This was the very first iteration of the voluntary carbon market back, way, way back, right in the early 2000s. And a lot of projects that were accredited to this now largely defunct, if not defunct, at least maybe a sort of mechanism that doesn't have a lot of rigor behind it, I suppose. Uh, a lot of those credits still exist because how, how carbon credits are issued, right? They're issued after a certain activity has taken place. So the, f- the fact that the activity had already happened be it to a completely different standard than what maybe is acceptable today, mm. is still part of this ecosystem of credits out there. One is still able to kind of buy them, but one is not likely to buy those very cheap credits today anymore. I think the story was different four or five years ago when there was less scrutiny and frankly, less capital in this market um, in twenty. 22, uh, you know, this space sort of surpassed $2 billion in transacted value, which can sound like a lot. But if you think about any very large company, you know, uh, I'm thinking, I don't know, say Facebook is magnitude larger than, than, you know, transactions happening here. Or if you even look at sort of carbon compliance marketplaces such as California, ETS, which is the uh, marketplace in Europe, these, they, they, they're like, I, I believe the combined value of the sort of compliance space is nearly uh, a trillion dollars, you know, so it's this magnitude, you know, bigger. So yeah, you know, there, there exists certain credits out there that, that, are, that are cheap that I think a lot of people that are engaged in the BCM today realize that they're cheap for a reason and don't want to touch these anymore because frankly, if you do and shit hits the fans, uh, the sort of climate action that you thought you could sort of swing by just buying these uh, like, you know, credits that don't do much will probably come back to bite you in the ass. You know, mm-hmm. so so there's a word of caution out there for folks. Yeah. What is the difference between a, a removal or a reduction credit and like a, a carbon offset? Or is it the same thing? Yeah, yeah. very good question. I was actually at a, uh, at a conference recently that was focused solely on CDR or carbon dioxide removal. And the whole, and there was this kind of underlying tone there of, should we be considering CDR credits to be linked with avoidance or reduction credits at all? And I don't believe there was a consensus reached because I think it's a pretty hot, hot bed topic. But 
the idea here is that an avoidance or reduction credit is essentially an instrument that has been created by an activity that did not happen. Whereas a removal credit is one where a credit is created by the active removal or sequestration of CO2 or equivalent stored in some in some fashion. So let's maybe double click on the reduction and avoidance piece there for a second. So if you think about maybe the Amazon rainforest, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we all know at this point that there's kind of illegal logging happening here at an alarming rate, right? Uh, if your carbon project is able to prove that, say, you have conserved a piece of forest land in the part of the Amazon that is under high threat, you have successfully avoided uh, the sort of carbon dioxide from being pushed out into the atmosphere. There are a couple of problems here, though, is that, number one, proving that sort of counterfactual becomes nearly impossible because you're dealing with future hypotheticals. How, how, how do you prove that? How do you for sure prove that that parcel of land would have been found, right? So that's, that's what becomes hard. And I think a lot of the criticism of the voluntary carbon market today is really focused on this one particular piece of the puzzle because 50% of issued credits out there today are in fact from forestry-based projects. And I'm, I'm not saying that all of these are suspect and they don't do anything, but certainly a large proportion of them do. Reduction is, is a little bit different. So the project that I kind of talked about earlier to folks, which was the um, biodigester projects that we've implemented in Uganda and Mexico, these reduce the amount of methane that would have escaped into the atmosphere had it not been for us essentially being able to get to um, move all the all the on-farm waste from just being left out and being exposed essentially to an anaerobic process within these particular biodigesters. So they're similar yet different in that a reduction project is a little bit more focused. You know, you you are you really do have the kind of counterfactual in front of you. Now for carbon dioxide removal or CDR, these can include processes such as DAC, you know, DAC, which again is is a sort of an engineered solution. That's on the expensive or sort of engineered or industrial side. Carbon dioxide removals can also take place in sort of nature-based in intervention. So at, at Native, for example, we have a number of different soil carbon-based projects. So these are essentially where we work with, say, Regen Ag or Regen grazing programs to uh, sequester and, and kind of store soils and, or store carbon dioxide in soils. Uh, and we have a number of programs like these. These can be in Montana, Argentina, Kenya, 
etc. Um, so there are different, again, there are different sort of conduits to how you can remove carbon. And depending on how you do it, you're likely going to be paying anywhere from a hundred to a thousand dollars a ton or somewhere in the sort of sub $30 a ton range, which is most nature-based interventions today. Just a quick, quick, I guess, uh, note on this. An afforestation or reforestation project is actually considered a carbon dioxide removal project because you're actually actively planting trees. There are things to consider in a sort of afforestation project too, which is that where are you planting these trees and for how long are you guaranteeing that these trees will last? Because if, say, you're just like planting a tree and you're like cutting it down after like 10 years... Have you actually net done anything? You know, mm. so that's that's again. This these are things that buyers who are interested in 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 really getting deep into what sorts of carbon programs they're investing in really need to need to kind of consider. All right, so here's a question for you then: mm-hmm. Are removals quantifiably better than mm-hmm. avoidance or? reduction credits yeah. you know yeah i i think this is a sort of philosophical question honestly is that it is true that i think to get to a global net zero reality this cannot exist without removing and storing carbon dioxide for an extended period of time it's it's simply the like math doesn't math, you know, <laughs> but um, there, I believe there, there exists a number of projects out there that are doing, again, beyond carbon work, you know, and these projects are typically community centric, uh, smaller nature based in- interventions that m- maybe avoiding or reducing carbon there are they're doing so by interventions that are necessarily important or what's considered additional so this idea of additionality can be threefold and really is the sort of baseline for what creates any sort of carbon credit so you can have financial additionality ecological additionality and and policy based uh, and policy based additionality and the idea of additionality is that would would a certain activity have happened had it not been for your intervention plain and simple and if you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it would not have happened then you have a carbon project on your hands but which is which is right, which is now right, which is what makes forestry based projects iffy because how how can you prove that a certain a certain part of forest would have absolutely have been cut down, and that's why we should now pay you to conserve a kind of parcel of forest you it's very hard to to like prove this, and if you did prove it, there's this other idea of essentially carbon leakage, which is this idea that if, say, you have preserved 500 hectares of forest land in one area, 
has the logging simply moved to another area next to it? And if so, have you really net net done anything at all? And there was this ex expose, uh, uh, you know, uh, recently that I read in the New Yorker that really dove literally into this topic. They they talked about a very large scale project in Zimbabwe that it was very hard to show that that these project activities were were like contained within within the sort of boundary of this project and that there wasn't leakage happening next door to it. And if if it is, has your project really really done anything? It's mm. unlikely. You know, so I wonder too, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on this. Um to, speaking of the the reforestation or 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 preservation um type projects what happens with like wildfires, right? Like, so if, if you buy carbon offsets this year and then next year, the whole thing burns down. Yeah. Very, very good question. Very poignant question. Very topical question. So, uh, this, this gets into the, into the sort of mechanics of the assets behind carbon and how registries, which are essentially bodies that host the actual issued credits, on their on their sort of platform, so folks may have heard of uh, entities such as Vera or Gold Standard, and these are basically accreditation bodies that have certain methodologies in place that project developers like Native can use to basically build a carbon project. Now, if you are going to be building a carbon project using one of these approved methodologies as part of the requirement of Vera or Gold Standard or others, they essentially create a buffer. And what this buffer pool is, is that a certain percentage of each project feeds into a larger Vera insurance or Vera buffer pool. And what this pool enables is that, say, some unforeseen, you know, calamity were to happen in a certain project that essentially renders any kind of carbon uh, asset that essentially cancels out any any kind of carbon credit. There is a larger pool that a buyer can be made whole from. So in in your in your kind of example there, Ben, about if there's a if there's a fire on a, in a forested land, typically what would happen is that one would be made whole from that pool of other other credits that that are mandated, essentially. Oh, interesting. So it's almost like a diversification portfolio, like you would think of on like the stock market, kind of like that 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 that's, yeah. that they're that is clustered with other assets. Should something happen. Or am I understanding that right? Yes, yes. I, I, I think that's certainly a fair, fair way to kind of think about it. I, I guess the only difference would be that you it, it might not always be a like-for-like like credit. It mm. likely will be, but it might not always be, right? Like, I don't know, say, say for instance, you, you, were, you were to make the you know, mistake of supporting an avoided deforestation project in say California 
right? Mm-hmm. And um, that entire forest essentially burns down next year. You may not get another credit from like California. It may be a credit from somewhere else, but it 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 is still an approved done, right? So, oh, it's so interesting. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, and time is flying. Holy bananas. Um, so I, I, thinking about some global warming mitigation goals, looking forward to 2030. Um, in that article that I mentioned at the top, you had you had mentioned the need for prices to reach seventy five dollars per ton to limit global warming. I'm curious, how optimistic are you about achieving that target, and what role do you see the market playing in in reaching those climate goals? Yeah, um, a couple of thoughts here, Ben. So the reason for that price that I have uh, stated there is because there. Are a number of reports, uh, one from the Oxford Initiative, that essentially price carbon, which means that how, at at what at what price is it that activities can scale, mm. and what what is the kind of social cost of carbon dioxide emissions, and there's a certain there's a there's essentially a curve that, that goes upward that says that the societal cost of carbon goes higher and higher and higher in, say, the years from 2020 to 2050 and so on. From an economics of it perspective, if, if the kind of carbon price is at $75 and how we get there could be either purely sort of voluntary action where buyers realize that they just simply need to be paying more money or you see a more robust compliance or regulatory scheme that requires large carbon, you know, I guess polluters to basically compensate. The reason for for this price would be that then you can attract more and more and more people to actually build projects at scale, right? Because if folks aren't willing to pay for more expensive projects, then no one's going to build them, if that makes sense, mm. yeah, right? Like there's, if, if there isn't sort of indications from the market that, yes, like we have the appetite to support a much more expensive projects, then folks that may have the ability to build such a thing, such as actually, you know, this is a pretty good example. These days, biochar, which is essentially a process of um, using a very high amount of heat on, uh, you know, biomass to be able to store this, this form of carbon for a very long period of time. This is being talked about a lot. And it's in this range of like $75 to $150 because it costs a pretty decent amount of money to actually get this thing going. Right now, the, that particular market is in, in, is in its sort of infancy, but we are seeing that there's much more interest here because this is a sort of cheaper carbon removal solution that basically guarantees that you, you're having sort of permanent carbon storage, right? 
which is, I think, what a lot of the market is looking for. If, if I'm to say it, whether I'm, I'm optimistic by 2030 that we'd get there, I would say that I am. I think we are really right now staying down the barrel of upcoming regulation and supply side tightening, which will ensure that quality is really at the forefront uh, of a lot of the market going forward. From the kind of buyer perspective, I think a lot of folks will realize that you can't simply claim carbon neutral. You need to show why, you know, and, and have sort of robust science-based targets behind you. So I think I am, I am optimistic, but I'm not optimistic just because I think human beings are just optimistic in general. I'm, I'm, I think I'm optimistic because I'm seeing things around me that make me think that, you know, there, there is a world where a lot of these solutions can in fact scale. I love that. And I'm curious, just for a, a starting reference point. So if the goal is $75 a ton, like ballpark on average, where are we sitting right now? <laughs> well, if you, if you were to basically aggregate the entire market, right, which is mm -hmm. also a lot of the older kind of credits that I like, talked about earlier and a lot of these like cheaper forestry based base credits, I would suppose the market's around five to ten ten dollars a ton right now. So So we got some work to do. <laughs> we and, and you know, but and this is why I think it's it's very important to really highlight the fact that not all carbon tons are, are, are created equal. Mm. Like just because it's five or and, and, and like, you know, ten ten bucks a ton does is not reflective of what sorts of projects will come online at say twenty five dollars a ton, thirty five dollars a ton, forty five, et cetera, et cetera, until we reach this number, right, of like seventy five dollars a ton. So I think again, like in this up, upcoming year, I think there, there, there's going to be a sort of dialogue about is there even any use for these credits that are so cheap? Should we just basically, you know, cancel them all? Should we say that this older mechanism that existed existed for a different time when we did when we had a different science when we weren't as aware of of, of sort of in, interventions and maybe you know, folks that were in it for the wrong reasons, you know? Uh, and I, I think it's, I think that, I think it becomes hard because like when you, when you kind of change the rules as you're going, there are going to be a lot of people that are upset about that. And, and a lot of, I think those that, that will feel stepped on, but I think it is important to kind of tighten, right? Tighten this market and go and head towards a reality where we're seeing trust, transparency, quality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I, I feel like we could just keep going. I, I, I do have like just two more questions for you if you have the time. Um, yes. Sir. One, you, you mentioned being optimistic. I'd love to hear more about that. What, like, what has you really rooted in optimism right now? Cause I think, uh, well, I guess I'll speak for myself. I, I feel like I could always use a little, a good healthy dose of optimism. Yeah. Yeah. I think my, my sort of optimistic outlook right, is that there are folks at the table today that are engaged with the voluntary carbon market that were not at the table five years ago. You're, you're seeing that entities that are actually kind of, you know, 
being able to build and scale projects are a lot more interested and eager to work with with communities that they're actually implementing these projects in they they aren't doing carbon for 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 kind of carbon sake they are realizing that for the success for the long term success of any carbon project you have to absolutely have community scale by and if you don't you're not going to have a carbon project native has certainly been fortunate that it really has been embedded within our ethos to do projects exactly like that you know mm-hmm. uh right from when we were founded and 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 so maybe my optimism is a little blindsided by where where i sit where i i would hope and imagine that others are also doing projects like us i can i can tell you that that's not always the case like you are still seeing iffy projects you are still seeing additionality that might be weak you know you are seeing that maybe community involvement isn't all the way there and so i guess my my optimism is more from the kind of guardrail and regulatory side of the market than some sort of seismic shift in in the fact that all folks now care care more you know i i don't think that's the case i think it's more the case that from both the kind of buyer end and the supplier end of the market there just are initiatives out there that are really trying to hone in on on what makes a trustworthy ecosystem for everybody to sort of you know participate in and uh going forth i think that it's certainly going to be key for how this entire market shapes up that's amazing any final thoughts words of wisdom or key takeaways you want to leave <laughs> folks with yeah ben this has been very enlightening and a fun conversation and i again thank you for having me on i think what i'll leave you and your folks with here is that the the kind of changing landscape and understanding and engagement from all sides of the voluntary carbon market has really given me a lot of hope in this in this space i i for one kind of got into it from a perspective of like disenchantment of the way that neoclassical economics was being taught in sort of graduate school and that led me to finding a market based mechanism to to solve one of the most existential problems or existential threats to the sort of human experience that I've ever seen and i think being being alive in this in this in this kind of period of time where we really have in my view the last shot like this this to me is it you know you there which which like sounds bleak but also i think is filled with sort of optimism because now you have more and more and more people who want impact with the work that they do like we spend 40 plus hours a week doing work and like if the work that you're doing isn't impacting people in some some positive way like you know be it you know like carbon or be it sort of engaging with with you know communities or doing something that sort of helps people i think we are that sort of age of enlightened work you you could say where folks care about the like things they do you know and i think a lot of people are headed that into that realm and that is what really gives me a lot of hope uh that we are all in it to sort of solve 
the world's biggest challenges. And when there are these many people trying to do that kind of work, uh, I, I, I don't doubt that we will get there. Maybe there'll be certain hiccups along the way, which um, we have already seen here in, in the last 10 to 15 years in, 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 the, in the kind of industry that I'm in. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that we will one day get there. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. As we close out this episode, I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. If today's conversation about carbon markets with Sarang Murthy piqued your interest, you'll definitely want to check out our previous discussion with Claire Lefebvre and Emily Gaynor, also from Native. We delved into the details of measuring scopes one, two, and three emissions and the intricacies of calculating those carbon offsets for sustainability. And if you're finding value in our shows and the insights shared, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Your support helps us grow and continue to bring you conversations that matter. We appreciate you. Until next time, be responsibly different. This content is made possible by Deergo Collective, a media consultancy on a mission to turn consumers into activists, one purchase at a time. To learn more about Deergo Collective, visit the link in your show notes. This episode was produced by Brittany Angelo and yours truly, Ben Marine. Music was licensed from B Corp certified Marmoset Music. To access more resources, visit responsiblydifferent.com.